if you haven't been here in several weeks, you're not alone. <laughs> we haven't met for a while. So I'm going to give you a little recap tonight. Um, we're in this book of Amos, the Old Testament book of Amos. And um, we've entitled this series, The Roar of Justice, because God is basically through the prophet of Amos telling us uh, why he's going to judge Israel and Judah. And uh, we've looked at, we're in chapter 6 tonight, but we've looked so far at the revelation of the Lord's coming judgment in chapter 1 through chapter 3. And then the second thing we looked at were the reasons for the Lord's coming judgment in chapter 4, all the way to the pretty much the end of the book, chapter 9. And so we're in these reasons, and, and uh, a couple of the, the first couple reasons we talked about, you know, we have this a wonderful introduction in chapter 1, verse 1, and we spent quite a bit of time giving you some background there and things like that. But here he, 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 he talks in uh, chapter 4, one of the reasons for the Lord's pending judgment on Israel was that their return to the Lord did not happen. The, re the return to the Lord did not happen. And um, he mentions Judah a little bit, but mostly he's dealing with the northern um, kingdom of Israel. And uh, he does uh, two verses on Judah, the other half of Israel. But, you know, here in, in, in the Old Testament, we have a lot of different things that the Hebrew prophets uh, mentioned. Um, there's a lot of different studies about the day of the Lord that you can go into, the coming great tribulation. We have a lot spoken of the Messiah uh, himself. There's a lot of uh, messianic prophecy going on. But what makes Amos unique is simply this. He tells us why God is going to bring the judgment. The other ones just say, hey, judgment's coming. But they don't really give us uh, a laid out reason like Amos does. And so he goes into vivid detail and just to refresh your memory, if you haven't been with this, we said there the first thing, one of the reasons was in, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, was the return to the Lord did not happen. Uh, several times throughout that chapter, you see that phrase, yet you have not returned to me. You think they'd get it. You, know, you think they'd wake up after God has given them certain judgments, but they don't. In other words, in spite of all the, the trouble that they got un, into, in spite of all the the, the sin, the idolatry that was going on, God was still gracious to them. He was still inviting them uh, to come home and to his heart. He, and he does the same thing with us, does he not? I mean, how many times have we gone down the wrong path? And you know what? God doesn't just strike us dead on the spot. He's gracious with us. And he's long-suffering. This is the God that we serve. We're told that the, the goodness of God, the forbearance of God, the patience of God is exactly what leads us to repentance. Um, and so, you know, you have to think of it. God is really proving the principle that flies are attracted to honey more than vinegar. All right? I mean, if we knew that we were going to go back to the Lord and he was just going to kill us on the spot, we'd probably not do it. Okay, but know that he is gracious and long-suffering. And even in the New Testament, Jesus, over and over again, you know, it, it speaks of Jesus having his hands outstretched to a disobedient, to a rebellious people. And the invitation that he gave goes out over and over and over again. And what is it? Come, what? On to me, right? You that are 
laden down with your sin and, and tired of laboring, and I will give you what? Judgment? No, I will give you rest. And so every one of us, if you're a believer here tonight, really the issue that we're dealing with here is repentance, is, is even as believers sometimes we need to repent. We need to change our thinking. We need to change our direction of living. Um, sometimes there's something wrong awry in our own heart. Uh, maybe there's something you thought, maybe something you said, maybe something you looked at that wasn't pleasing to the Lord. And it's really keeping you from knowing his true power, his true blessing in your life. And the message of Amos is you need to come back. You need to come back to the Lord. You know, it doesn't matter how far you have walked away from the Lord in your life. It's just one step back. Isn't that great? God doesn't say, oh, you know what? You lived in rebelliousness from my ways for 10 years, so it's going to take you 20 years to get back. No, he didn't do that. Just turn around. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God. Um, the first, really, seed of decay that will bring even temporary discipline and chastisement into the life of a believer is when we don't come back to the Lord. When we just dig our heels in and go, nope, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do, God, and I, I'm not going to do this thing anymore. We try to straighten everything out ourselves. We try to talk to everybody but the Lord. And we see if we can just get everything figured out on our own because we don't want to be a burden to God. And God says, no, 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 no. That's not what I want. I want you to return to me. I want you to come back to the heart of the Lord. And the second thing that we talked about was not just that you would return to the Lord, but also the reason that they got judged was the refusal to return, but their, also the refusal to seek the Lord. Uh, was quite obvious. And we covered that, remember, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 27. The second step as to why God brings judgment is that they refused to seek the Lord. They just, they just refused to do it. They didn't return. That didn't happen. And they refused to seek the Lord. And it was rather obvious if you read through chapter 5. You can see it over and over and again. And you, you look at those people and you think, what is wrong with these people? But as I read that, I thought, what's wrong with me, <laughs> right? I mean, how many times do I go down this path of trying to solve problems myself, and I'm not willing to pray and ask God for wisdom, and we just wait and we wait. We think we can figure everything out on our own. And see, those are all steps that lead us down in a downward spiral away from God. And if you decide that you don't need to seek the Lord, I would encourage you to remember in, in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 7.14, when Solomon, basically, uh, what he was told when he finished the temple, and it says this in, in 7.14 of 2 Chronicles, God said, if my people, who are called by my name, shall what? Humble themselves and pray, and what? Seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then, then, he says, then I, will hear from, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. See, we need to seek the Lord as a country, as a nation, even the world. And so they refused to do that. They refused to return. They refused to seek the Lord. And tonight that brings us to the third thing in chapter 6. Their reliance was upon themselves. And because of that, it would prove out to be a complete disaster in their lives. Nobody is an island unto themselves, right? 
we, we all need each other. And there's six things here that I want you to see, and they're there in your, your outline. But the first one here, um, you know, when we get older, a lot of times we, we, we want to trust in ourselves. We think, you know what, we've experienced life. Uh, we, we're, we've had a lot of experience. We've been through this before. And we have a tendency um, to, to really do exactly what they were doing here, relying upon themselves. And as Christians, we're never to rely upon ourselves. We're to be constantly dependent upon the Lord each and every day. And so, you know, I often wondered why a lot of times when people get older, that's the attitude they take. You know, they're not quick to go to prayer. They're not, you know, they just figure they got everything straightened out. Um, and I always wonder, well, what, why are they that way? And now, as an older person, <laughs> I can tell you why. You know, it, you, just, you just get into a routine, and, and you, you basically, you know, want to just do things the way you've done them. And I've seen a lot of older people, they grow grouchy, they grow complaining, and all this stuff. That doesn't need to happen. Every day should be a fresh day in the Lord. And you don't need to become resentful. You don't need to be critical. You don't need to become judgmental. Uh, because, you know what, if that's your attitude when you get older, pretty soon you're going to look around, and guess what? You're not going to see nobody. <laughs> there's not going to be any family, there's not going to be any friends, because you're just a cantankerous old person that is miserable, and you're going to make everybody else miserable. And part of that is because you're relying on yourself. You've gotten to the point where you think, oh, I, I can work it all out. See, too much, when we trust too much in ourselves, it leads us not to God, but it leads what? Away from God. It really does. And this is one of the problems that they had. And we're always trying to solve problems. Uh, but you know what? Sometimes we just need to stop. And we just need to ask God, help me with this. Lord, I, I don't have the answer. I don't understand how this thing is going to work out. I don't understand why this test came back the way it did or why this happened or why that happened. I don't understand. And you know what? When you go to the Lord, that doesn't mean he's definitely going to clear everything up and everything's going to be happy, happy, happy. Sometimes, you know what, I've brought things before the Lord and God said, no, I'm not going to do that. He has something else in mind. And so we need to be patient. And that's when you look back on things like that, you realize that's exactly what I needed, right, at that moment in time. I didn't know it. I thought I needed something else. But God knew exactly what I needed. And that's what the Lord does. And so we're, we're talking about this, relying on ourselves tonight. And, and we're inundated. If you watch any television at all or listen even to radio, you hear this message over and over and over again. We live in a very narcissistic society, and basically the message is you depend on yourself. You know, that's it. You don't need anything else. you got the brains to figure it out. You don't need to depend on the Lord. All these things. And so... You know what? In Samaria, that's really what the mentality was. They were blessed with, with wealth and, and just strength as a nation and, and all these things and as a people. And, and they had a lot of luxury in, in, the, in, the, in the Samarian people there. It wasn't some little tent village out in the desert. Uh, it was gorgeous. It was a beautiful palace that they, they had. They called it the Ivory Palace. And we're going to be looking a little bit about that on the mountains of Samaria. They had wealth running just everywhere. It was unbelievable. And they had conquered many people who tried to get them. 
A lot of people came against Samaria, and they conquered them all. And, and really, people in general thought Samaria was impregnable. There's no way anyone could ever, ever defeat Samaria. Um, and many people, many nations, many people groups have said that in the past, only to discover that God sent a nation to destroy them. <laughs> and it wasn't really up to them. And this is what he's going to do to these, this great people of Samaria. Uh, the nation that's going to rise up against them is Assyria. So let's look at, at, at Amos chapter 6, and let's just look at the first, or, or the, the 14 verses here in Amos chapter 6. You can follow along in your Bibles, and I'll read them for you. Woe to those who are at ease. You hear that word. They're just relaxing in their wealth, in their luxury, at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations. That's their status. To whom the house of Israel comes. Verse 2, pass over to Kauna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? See, they're feeling very self-confident here. Verse 3, or you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing, verse 5, idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instrument of music. Look at this, verse 6, who drink wine, not in glasses. Notice it says in bowls. I mean, you can see just overflow of abundance everywhere and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, verse 9, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, if there's anyone still with you, uh, is there anyone still anyone with you, he shall say no, and he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Verse 12, do horses run on rocks? These are rhetorical questions. Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnim for the, ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Father, we ask tonight that you would give us wisdom as we work through part of this text anyway. And Lord, there's a lot in this chapter, this chapter here that sometimes <laughs> it's hard to understand. It's just language we don't get. There's 
indifference, there's indulgence, there's immorality, there's idolatry. It's all right here. And Lord, sometimes we think, as your people, we can escape any chastisement from you. Uh, maybe we've already stopped seeking your face. Maybe we're already trusting in ourselves a little bit too much. And maybe we're even trying to spiritualize the whole thing. But our hearts can be far from God. And Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us as only you can through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the power of your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing here, their reliance upon themselves would prove to be a disaster. There's six things here we need to understand under this heading. And the first one is that the dependence they had was upon their location. The location of Samaria. Look at what it says in verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who, look at what it says, feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. So they, they were finding their reliance, their security in their location. And it's pretty obvious, this first one. Um, sometimes we can put emphasis, we can put trust in our location, right? We, we, we live in a relatively pretty safe area, even though it's still in California. I mean, most of us, you know, live in a pretty safe neighborhood, we would say. But in the last several years, we see it growing less and less safe, right? I mean, there's just a lot of craziness going on out there. Uh, there's a lot of people that live in certain neighborhoods and think, well, I don't know, this is a secure neighborhood. But then you read the paper and you go, wow, even places like Atherton or Menlo Park or, or even parts of Redwood City that are more affluent, it's like, wow, there was a crime. Somebody broke into their house and stole everything they had. And you're thinking with all their security systems, with all the police, with everything, you think that you can have a little security. Well, this is what was happening to these people. Their dependence was on the location of Samaria. They wanted a little bit of heaven here on earth. They don't want to live in a place that's threatening their lives all the time. That's why people are leaving California, right? And have left California. But you know what? It doesn't matter where you live. They still rob the homes. You still have crime. You still have things like that going on. And, and it says, you know, those who trust in the mountain of Samaria, Samaria. And it's kind of like, is that really going to help you? And you kind of relate it to our own thinking as kind of citizens of the United States of America, we think, yeah, who can touch us? We're superpower. We are the superpower in the world, right? And, and so we have a, a certain entitlement, you might think, to think that, you know what, yeah, it's, I can see if you live in a third world country, you might get overrun by terrorists or something like that, but we live in America. Um, even in Israel, they have a very strong military. They have a very strong will to survive. And the unfortunate thing is that's what their trust is in. They have air bases that are actually underground. They're impregnable from any kind of attacks and things like that. It's, just, it's, it's very creative the way that they've set themselves up. And you talk to a lot of military leaders in Israel and they say, no, we're not, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll get attacked here and there. But for the most part, if you go against Israel, you're going to be on the, the, the sore side of, of the fight. And you know what? What he's saying here is, is this is where they were. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 18, he says there, Woe to 
you who desire the day of the Lord, why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. He says, and if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him, uh, bit him is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? So, you know, they're saying basically, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter what comes down to the pike. We're going to be fine because we live in Samaria. We live in the mountains of Samaria. Uh, and they were, they were dependent on their location. Just because we live in America doesn't mean that we are removed from harm. And we see that today in our society. The only security you and I really have is security in who? In the Lord, in Christ. That's it. Well, secondly, their disasters that come upon others could come upon them. Verse 2. Here's something very interesting. He mentions these different names here in verse 2. He says, pass over to Kauna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. He begins to talk about these, and, and they're kind of significant because Hamath, Hamath is really the entrance way when you uh, come from Damascus over to the land of Israel. It's kind of uh, like the north there. And uh, both of these places did not fall to anyone according to history, until 738 B.C. That would be far after the time of this prophecy. And as a matter of fact, Gath of the Philistines fell much later in another attack. And so when he says here in verse 2, oh, look at Kelna, and look at Hamath the Great, and look at Gath of the Philistines, is he looking at them and saying, well, who could touch them? And we are so much greater than them. That's what the people of Samaria were saying, basically. Well, what's interesting, whether he's referring to their impressions of those places or saying that Samaria is greater than them, either way, the point is, is that at a certain time, point in time, God destroyed these fortresses. God destroyed these strongholds. And you know what, Samaria, you're no better. You're going to go down too. And see, so you think things are going to be different uh, for you. They won't be if you don't repent, if you don't turn, return to the Lord. Uh, that would be true of anybody, even today. If we're living in direct disobedience to God's commands and God's word, you know what? You're, you're setting yourself up for God's judgment to fall upon you. Because God says he, he's no respecter of persons. It will fall upon those who are his people, if they're living in disobedience, not in a judgment as far as eternity goes, but in a uh, kind of a disciplinary function here on earth. And the Bible even says it will fall upon, and it be, judgment begins with what? The house of God begins with the people of the Lord. And so it's a pretty powerful point. So we have this dependence that they had on the location, the disasters that will come upon others could come upon them, so don't feel so great about yourselves. And then number three here in verses three to six, he gives a description of their lifestyle, which really revealed that this judgment from God was deserved. It's not like God's up in heaven and saying, I'm just going to judge people for the fun of it. No, they, they gave him reason to judge them. Look at what it says in verse, verse three. O you who put far away the day of disaster, 
and bring near the seat of violence. Um, this is, is kind of an interesting um, wording here because there's, there's three things here, or six things here that we want to describe this, this, this lifestyle. And the first one is their confidence refused to believe that they faced any danger. In other words, it says, put away this, this judgment day. Put away the, the evil day that's coming. Don't, don't worry about it. He's referring back to the day of the Lord. Hey, we, we don't have any worry about that. Uh, that had never happened to us. And they really refused to believe that they were in danger. And this is, this is what happens to people today who are living in direct disobedience to the Lord. They're living for themselves. They're living sinful lives. And God is saying, hey, you need to come to me. You need to repent. You need to bring your sin to me. I will forgive it. I will restore you. And, but they continue down that path. They just willfully refuse. And you're, you're basically saying, you know what? I, I don't need this. And their confidence really refused to believe that they faced any danger. You know, there is a place called hell. This is a real place. There is a place called heaven. And when you leave this life, when you breathe your life, when last breath, when your heart pumps its last ounce of blood and you are dead, you are deceased, there's no life in your body, you will be in one of two places, heaven or hell. That's what the Bible teaches. And so we need to be aware of that. Because you know what? It's, it's having confidence to the point where you just refuse to think that you're in any danger or your eternity, your eternal soul uh, lies in the balance. Uh, you know, he, he, he's just saying, you know what? Woe unto you the desire, who desire this day of the Lord to come. Like, uh, it's no big deal. And then he says that it's not, this, this, not going to be a joyful time. It's a dark time. Uh, he says in verse uh, uh, 4, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory. Um, their comforts were really more important, you could say that, than their commitment to the Lord. These people were more focused on their luxury items. And you say, well, a bed of ivory, that doesn't sound very comfortable. <laughs> okay, it didn't to me anyway. You know, I'll take my sleep number bed anytime over a bed of ivory. But, you know, when you read about this, they really carved these beds to fit your body. So, yeah, it was hard, but with blankets and things, but it was, it was, it was made custom because they were so luxurious. And it says they lie upon beds of ivory, they stretch themselves upon their couches, and they eat. I mean, do you like to sleep? Do you like to eat? I know I do. I mean, this is part of life, right? Um, and so, you know, these, these folks were just very, very much focused on the comforts of life. And you know what? There's nothing like traveling somewhere and checking into a hotel only to find that the bed's just horrible, right? It's just miserable. You know, I mean, I can deal with the, the continental breakfast. You always know they're going to be cruddy anyway. But, you know, uh, but I mean, give me a good bed at least, you know. They don't even have to have a pool. You know, just a good bed. That would be nice. And, and I think that we need to be reminded of that. But, you know, when we think of our comforts being more important than our commitment to the Lord, I mean, this hits home with us. You know, we live here in America. We, we have our comforts. We know what it's like to go home and turn on the 
air conditioner or the heater or the light and the light comes on, right? I mean, we know how to do that. Uh, you go to some countries, they don't, they don't have that. You know, they don't have fresh drinking water. They got to go a mile to bring it in a bucket. And then they got to filter it and boil it and do all this stuff to it before you can even drink it, let alone cook anything in it. Or It's just, and, and so we, we grow very accustomed to the comforts. And when we look at serving the Lord in a, in a place like a third world country, I'm just going to be honest, that's not on my top 10 list. You know, I don't have a burning desire to go live in the outback, um, you know, in Africa somewhere where you can't take a shower and you got bugs and sweat and just, oh, that just makes my stomach crawl. Could God send me there? Yeah, he could. You know, I pray my heart would be obedient and go, but I don't know if I would like it. But see, we get so caught up with the comforts that we have, right down to our cell phones and TVs and everything. And it just kind of overwhelms us sometimes. And sometimes those things become more important than our commitment to uh, the Lord even. And so we have to stop and we have to realize, hey, you know what? Um, that doesn't make us any different than anybody else. If God wants us to serve him, we should be willing to serve him no matter what the situation is. It's like the guy who said, you know, he's always complaining about his shoes. Always complaining about his shoes. Until he met a, a guy that had no feet. <laughs> wow. Right? I mean, it just puts things in perspective. And so their comforts were more important than their commitment. Um, the third thing here, their chanting of music in verse 5. Look at this. Who sing like idol, who sing idol songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. Kind of neat. And you say, well, okay, what, what's, what's wrong with that? Um, you know, their chanting of music was an attempt to duplicate the the worship music of David. And you know what? Today. Uh, Worship has become such a uh, big deal in churches. And by worship, I mean music, particularly, right? I mean, people are making billions and billions and billions of dollars off that whole deal. And a lot of us in the church are just going along to fat, dumb, and happy, going, oh, this is great. And yet, a lot of what we see is performance-based, it's, it's not really honoring to the Lord, I don't think. And we have to stop and we have to say, wait, is this, is this necessarily good? Yeah, I like the music. I like, it's got a good beat. I got good words, whatever. But is this honoring to the Lord? You know, I've caught myself as a musician liking songs that when I actually took the music away and just read the lyrics, I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, why, why are we singing this song? This is nonsense. Um, but I like the music, you know. And so you just have to be very, very, very careful about that. And that doesn't mean we get caught up in, oh, hymns only. We only sing hymns. If it's not a hymn, no, it's not. No, I, I don't believe that at all. But we have to be realistic. We have to be honest with ourselves. And sometimes we want to go down a path and God's saying, you know what? That, may, that might not be the, the best place for you to go. So look at the next thing here. Their consumption of alcohol blinded them to the dangers ahead. Look at verse 6. 
they says they drink wine in bowls. Um, you know, and I'm not going to get into the whole thing. Oh, should you ever never drink wine? Whatever. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, to drink wine out of a bowl. I mean, think if you went somewhere over somebody's house and they say, "You want a bowl of wine?" I mean, what would you think? I mean, that would be a little weird, right? I mean, that that would be someone who has a kind of a consumption problem there. Um, and the point is, what he's doing, he's using this graphic imagery to point a picture of, of complete debauchery and really alcoholism. He's saying these people have no control. I mean, it's like somebody taking two wine bottles and drinking them at the same time, you know, uh, not just one. And I think maybe today in our society we have some problems along that line, <laughs> you know. Uh, I've even heard Christians say, yeah, I just had a tough day. I just got to have something to drink. Speaking of alcohol, I'm thinking, wow, that, that's not good. <laughs> you know, um, you just have to be careful with that. But not only their, their consumption, but look at the next thing, ladies. <laughs> it says, and anoint themselves with the finest oils. This, this really talks about cosmetics. Don't think that, you know, cosmetics were just around since you've been alive. They've been around for many, many, many years. As a matter of fact, they were a lot worse back then. I mean, they'd paint themselves up with all kinds of stuff. And the older they got, the younger they wanted to look. So, you know, I think it was uh, J. Vernon McGee asked him one time, do you think women should wear, wear makeup? And he said something along the line. He goes, well, he goes, I, I don't have a chapter verse for that. But he goes, as far as I'm concerned, ladies, if you need it, pile it on. <laughs> you know, and I thought, wow, that's a good, that's a good message. You know, uh, that's 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 kind of a good good thing, and 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 see here they were they were remember this is where they're putting their 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 lifestyle. This is all about that, and and we see that going on today. They had tons of ointments and tons of stuff, and they were very wealthy, so they could afford all this stuff. And when the traders came through town, they bought every kind of fine oil and ointment and everything, and put it on their bodies, trying to make themselves look different, different perfumes, all that stuff. Now, you know, we should smell good and all that stuff. We don't want to smell bad. So there's nothing wrong with those things. But when they dominate your life, okay, uh, and, and, and sometimes it, it does get to that. There are people that spend hours and hours and hours in front of the mirror. And I don't know if that's a great steward of time, to be honest with you. Now, some of us could probably spend a little more time in front of the mirror. I get that, okay. But, you know, it's a balance, right? It's just like everything else. And so he talks about their consumptions. He talks about their cosmetics. All these have to do with their lifestyle. And then in verse 6, he also talks about their concern for those who were suffering. And basically, he says it was non-existence. Look at what he says in, in verse 6. He says, uh, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Think about this. What, what is he saying here? He's bringing up this Old Testament character, Joseph, the affliction of Joseph. And it was really a, a powerful uh, reminder to them. Think where Joseph was. He was down in a pit, right? His brothers threw him in a pit. Um, they didn't really care about Joseph. They were having a good old time. They were eating. They were plotting what they were going to do. I mean, <laughs> their brother... They didn't care for him. Um, and so he wants them to see this picture. And he says, you know what? Maybe you don't like to be around the suffering, but really the suffering is everywhere. 
and it's going to be in your own backyard pretty soon. Thank God the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that we will one time inherit, right? When, when that will be revealed for us. But there will be times of suffering. There are hurts, there are disappointments in life, all these things. And the, the reference, folks, uh, here to the affliction of Joseph is a powerful reminder to them. You know, his brothers didn't care about him. They're having a party, basically. And, and that's the same thing here with these people. They didn't care about people who were um, suffering in any way, whether it be because of poverty or whatever. They just, hey, eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we die. That's, that's their mentality. And so when you think about that, you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, hopefully you don't fall into those categories. That lifestyle doesn't depict your lifestyle. But the fourth thing here in verse 7, as we move on and, and we, we talk here about these reliance upon themselves, he says there's this decision to take them captive uh, was based on the description of their lifestyles. And he goes into this, uh, in verse 7, he says, Therefore, now shall they go captive with the first that go captive, and the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. And so you say, well, what does this mean? The banquet of them that stretch themselves? Uh, it's similar to our contemporary words, basically, you know what? The party's over. That's kind of what he's saying here. The party is over. Uh, they're going to they're gonna, uh, pass away. And so in verse 7, we have the decision to take them captive, and it was based upon the description of their lifestyle. Uh, look back at chapter 5, verse 27. He says, And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. He tells them this. Uh, the last the last verse of chapter 6, he says, I will raise up against you, what? A nation, O house of Israel, God of hosts, says the Lord, and they shall afflict you from entering in of Hamath. And so that's when you, you come over from Damascus into northern Israel under the, the river there, or Arabah, as it says there, down in the desert, the whole land, in other words, they're going to attack the whole land. That's what he's doing. He's giving these coordinates. And that's exactly what Assyria, according to history, ultimately did. Um, and it, it, it says there in, in verse 7 that this, this, uh, uh, this is going to happen. It's very graphic. And so he's just telling them, look, you know what? You have your party now because... It's going to be over soon. You, you think it's going to last forever. It's not. And that's, and that's how people live their lives, right? They live their lives like there's no end. I, I sometimes talk to younger people, and they'll say, oh, I'm young. I'm not going to die. You don't know that. You may not make it home tonight. You don't know. You don't know. All I know is God says there's, a, there's an appointed time for you to die, <laughs> Sooner or later, it's going to happen. And the key is to be ready for that time. And so this decision to take them captive was based upon the description of their lifestyle. The fifth thing here, the determination of the Lord to bring His judgment. And this is, this is really kind of interesting. 
because he, he says here that I will deliver up the city with all that is there and, and, and everything. And he, he notices four things here in these verses uh, of eight, 8 to 11. First of all, his character demands it. In other words, he cannot not judge at this point. His character demands it. Look at what it says in verse 8. And the Lord has sworn what? By himself, declares the Lord. So he's saying, based upon my own word, based upon my own character, this is going to happen. Do you think God's just going to sweep your sins under the rug? Do you think he can just look the other way? Uh, no, the Bible says that he swore by himself, and he is the God of all armies. And, and God is going to bring what he has to do. He's a God of justice. Remember, he's a God of judgment. Yes, he has love. That's why he extends forgiveness to us. But ask yourself, is there something in your life you haven't dealt with? Because sooner or later, it's going to catch up with you. And God is saying through the prophet Amos, hey, don't wait. He's warning you. He's warning us. But if we don't return to him, if we don't straighten it out, no matter what, uh, you know what? It's going to come back to us because his character the character of God demands it. He can't just look the other way. Secondly, his comments reveal it. Look at what he says. He says, um, the Lord has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the Lord of hosts. And then he says this, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Uh, I hate this, he says. That's a very strong word. God is not impressed with their wealth. He's not impressed with their accomplishments. And his, his comments here reveal it. Now, he's commenting on how wonderful all their achievements are, you know, but he says, you know what? They are wonderful. He's not denying that, but I hate it. I hate the palaces. I hate what you've created here, uh, all these beautiful things that you've done. I hate it all. Why? Because it, it's, it's taken you away from me. Do you know that God is not impressed by our wealth? He's not impressed by our accomplishments. God doesn't look down from heaven and go, oh, wow, look at what you did today. I mean, you know, you're talking about a God who created everything we see around us in six days just by the power of his word. Um, he's not impressed by that. We are, right? As men and women, we look at the what? Outward appearance of someone. So we look at how someone, the car they drive, where they live, the house they have, everything, all the toys, whatever, and we go, wow, that guy's really successful. But what's going on in their heart? What's in the heart? That's where God looks. Um, be very careful, because we can all put on a show. We can all make ourselves look better than what we are. But God knows what's in our heart, and the, and the Bible describes the heart. I guy the other day said, oh, I have a good heart. I had to tell him, no, you don't. And he looked at me and said, what do you mean? I go, the Bible says your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, you can't even know your own heart. I've heard people say, oh, i got a good heart. Hey, you don't know that. The Lord who searches out the heart. When I was a youth pastor, kids used to come up to me. We'd 
be somewhere. And I said, okay, now you got to be back here at 10 o'clock. You know, Great America, whatever. You get on the bus at 10 o'clock. You know, kind of drill that home to them. And, and um, one of the kids one day says, what's wrong, Pastor? You don't trust us? I go, no, I don't trust you. <laughs> you know, and that was just like mind-blowing. You don't really trust. I said, no, I don't even trust myself, let alone you. You know, I mean, why would I do that? I trust in the Lord. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we put too much trust in other things. And so we just need to be reminded of that. The third thing here is his consequences will affect every family. This is kind of a weird text here. It's kind of odd. It's talking about um, in, in verses uh, 9 to 10. It says, if 10 remain in one house, they shall die. And if one's when, and when one, one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to the to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? And he shall say no. And he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. And see, this is, this is the, the mentality here of these people. The determination of the Lord will bring his judgment. But you know what? It's going to have consequences that will affect every family. And this illustration that he's using is that is one of, of uh, war. And, and when war happens, what happens? People die, okay? And so you have all these, 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 these bodies, basically. And he's saying, hey, we don't want people to know that the Lord did this. And we're not going to mention the Lord up. And we're going to burn everything, so we kind of get rid of the evidence. That kind of a thing. That's, that's basically the illustration. I know that's kind of a poor description of it, but I don't know how else to describe it. And, and it's, it's a tough, tough couple of verses to deal with. But he's basically saying, you know what? There's been this devastation, so we just got to burn everything and hide the evidence. We don't want anyone to know that the Lord did this to us because we're just so prideful. Um, and so you have the consequences that will affect every, every family. And then... The fourth thing here is command will show no partiality. Look at verse 11. For behold, the Lord commands, he will smite the great house with breaches and the little house with clefts. Um, you know, the little house into bits. In other words, it's not going to matter whether you live in a big house or a little house. There's no, there's no partiality with the Lord. Uh, he's he's going to wipe it all out. God is no respecter of persons. Everybody's going to get it when God's judgment comes. And so we have to be reminded of that. And that brings us to the final point here, which is kind of a difficult one for us because the decisions to use another nation to bring God's judgment. We don't get this. We don't understand how this could even possibly um, happen, really. In verse 12, he, he says, Do... Horses run on rocks. Does one plow where they're, uh, with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. What he's saying here is that God is going to raise up a nation to bring judgment against these people, this people. And so... Uh, when you think about judgment, when you think about war, 
all right? What happens in war? People die. There's a lot of innocent people that die in war. That's unfortunate. A lot of women die, a lot of children die. Those who get, it's horrible. War is horrible. But it's a fact of life. It's a reality. We know it's a terrible thing. We all want peace. But when God brings this kind of judgment, a lot of people will get hurt in the process. And sometimes that's hard to understand. I mean, you think for our own country. I mean, do you really believe that anyone could really ever bring America down? Probably today you'd say, yeah, we're pretty close to that. It wouldn't take a whole lot <laughs> with those in power. We understand that. But, you know, if you asked that question 20 years ago, you'd say, oh, absolutely not. That would never happen. You know, we're the strongest nation on the face of the earth. And you have a lot of enemies that we call extremists today. And you know what? There's a lot of people that think, no, America's coming down. There's no mention of America in biblical prophecy at all. So we don't know what's going to happen to it. Is it just going to be absorbed by the EU? What, what's going to happen to it? We don't know. But there's a couple different thinking thoughts, uh, thoughts of thinking on this. One is that we're going to collapse on ourselves <laughs> from the rot from within, which today seems pretty likely, economically, morally. Um, that's probably more of what's going to happen than what we like to admit. But there's a whole other branch of thinking that says, no, we're vulnerable to an attack. And I think today we are especially vulnerable to an attack. I mean, when you have open borders, it, it, it's just crazy. People coming into our country who, some of them are good people, they just want another job, they want to work, they, okay, great. But what about the people that don't? I mean, think about it. What was it, 18 guys or whatever that took down the three, two towers and killed all the people on 9-11? I mean, it wasn't a whole lot of people. It doesn't take a lot of people to do things like this. And so I think we're very, very vulnerable today. And you know what? When you can put a nuclear warhead in a briefcase and carry it around with you and set it off at will, I mean, can you imagine if something like that happened in our country? And I think we're closer now than ever to something like that happening. Um, even after the destruction of the Twin Towers in New York, um, it, it didn't take very long for people to say, oh, that had never happened again. It's like we almost forgot about it. Israel has a Holocaust memorial, and they have it every year, and they say the same thing at the Holocaust memorial every year. They say, well, you know what? Never again. Never again. Well, really, those are empty words. <laughs> okay? Uh, because when... They actually opened up the KGB files. They found that Stalin had murdered and killed more Jews than Hitler ever did. And it continued after Hitler's Holocaust. So, you know what? I mean, they're kind of empty words. And so it wasn't just Germany. It was all around. But here, Israel today, we see them saying the same thing. They, they're putting a lot of trust in their military might. They're putting a lot of trust in their ingenuity, all these things. I mean, even here in the United States, we think, hey, we're the, the top dog, we're the superpower. And yet it would only take one little nation like North Korea <laughs> to have just one little successful nuclear weapon launched. And you know what? Wow. 
it's all over, especially when they can go 6,000 miles and hit with pinpoint precision sometimes. Iran, they have, I looked on the internet today, they probably have anywhere from 18 to 22 nuclear bases already. Now, they don't have them fully funded and equipped yet, but they're on their way. Uh, and so you, you, you look at that and you say, well, what do we do? What do we do if we're a believer? You know, I don't want to get blown up. You know what? What's the Bible say? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. I mean, that'd be the best way to go in my mind. Just boom, gone, gone. Okay. Uh, you know, no cancer, no suffering, none of that. Just gone. You just ushered in the, the presence of the Lord. And our, our world leaders are, are missing the point. You know, we think we're safe when we get in an airplane because we take our shoes off. It's just ridiculous. It's just so weird. And we have this organization called Homeland Security that basically was rifling through people's suitcases and stealing stuff when they first started because there was no cameras to keep them from doing it. So, you know, it, it's very odd the way we approach uh, the whole security issue. But you know what? God is going to use another nation to bring God's judgment. And what I see here in verse 12 is they lost their ability to know what is right. And that's why he asked these three questions. Do horses run on rocks? And of course not. You know, that would, that would hurt the horse. I mean, you know, sand would be much better. Uh, does one plow there with oxen? Obviously not. You can't. It, it's a rock. It's going to be difficult to do that. And then he says, but you have turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. This is a poison. It's used to destroy people. That's not right. God actually will motivate a nation to make that attack on a nation that supposedly was the Lord's and should have turned to the Lord and repented. He will use an unbelieving, ungodly nation to come and strike them. That's what he's telling them there. You know, we, we need to stop playing around and begin to realize that God wants to get our attention and I pray that he doesn't have to do that with such a thing as one of these attacks. And, and here they lost their ability to know what is right. They're asking these stupid questions, and they're, they're redundant questions. They're, they're, they're moronic questions. But in verse 13, he, he also points to the fact that, you know what? They loved their, to refer to their past successes. He says, you who rejoice in low debar, okay, uh, you, you who rejoice, it's nothing. Lodabar means nothing. It's absolutely nothing. You think you, you're so great. You think you're such a great nation. You know what? In the eyes of the Lord, you're nothing. Zip. He says, have we not by our own strength captured carnim uh, or horns for ourselves? In other words, hey, you've had some success. This is what he's pointing out. You, you've had some success here in the past. But don't, don't allow that to be the only thing you're trusting in for the future. I mean, the United States has won some wars, have lost some wars, but they won some wars. But you know what? We don't walk around just presuming on that because they don't realize that this country here that Amos is talking about, he doesn't realize that this threat is coming from the east. And they're going to be conquered. And then the third thing here is they learned that God can raise up another nation to judge them. Look at what it says in verse 14. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Now remember, the house of Israel is God's people, right? 
These are God's people who are dealing with this. Um, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you, Laboth Hamath, to the brick, to the brook of Arabah. So he's saying the whole nation. Um, and they they didn't they didn't do things the right way. They didn't seek the Lord. Um, they refused to return to the Lord. And now they became so reliant upon themselves that uh, it, it's just disastrous what happens. I'm reminded in, in, in Isaiah chapter 40, as we close tonight, um, Isaiah 41 starts off with, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. But then down in verses 15 to 17, he says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. We think so much of our world agenda and a country and all this stuff. And God says, you know what? It's a drop in a bucket. And he says, and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, speaking of all the trees, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Doesn't matter what you do. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. I mean, do we really understand who we are? Yeah, we're a superpower, but according to God, we're nothing. We're nothing. Israel, with all its military might, it's nothing. That is proved back when they were attacked by a bunch of crazy terrorists flying hang gliders. And, I mean, it's, it's just bizarre how these things work out. And yet God is saying, you know what? I want you to call upon my name. I want you to draw near to me. I want you to return to me. Have we sought the Lord? Have we stopped depending on our own stuff, on our own ingenuity? And it, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about our lifestyle or even our evangelism for that matter. What do we do? We, we got to find the best track. We got to do this. We, we've got this little gimmick that we're going to do and go out and share the Lord. Why don't we just live for Christ and share his gospel? <laughs> that would be so simple. You know, we get away from the basics. We have to be reminded that, you know what, Christ is all in all. That's all we need. We don't need all this other clutter in our lives. He's everything I need. He's in us. He's everything we need. And, and that's what really counts. And I would ask you tonight, are you trusting in him? Are you content in him? Or are you searching for contentment in all the goodies that we have all around us in our blessed nation? For eye is not heard, ear, or eye is not seen, nor ear, hear, ear heard, neither has entered the heart of man. The things the Lord has prepared for those that love what? Him. Him. Father, we thank you tonight for our time in this book, and we thank you for this chapter, Lord. I pray that it would remind us that we need to stop living independently and live for you. We need to stop trusting ourselves and trust in you. And Lord, you called out those who are at ease in Zion. And Father, I pray that you, we would not be at ease here in America with all the comforts that we have. And Lord, that we would begin to understand what it means to live for you each and every day. That we would cry out to you each morning and say, Lord, live your life through me. Help me to live a life that is honoring to you 
that is glorifying to you. If there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would come to terms with that, that they would turn from their sin to the Savior, that they would be honest about their condition before you, and that you would open their eyes to that condition and that they would be willing to embrace your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as their Savior. Because you're the one, Lord, you're the one that went to the cross and died. You're the one that was buried. You're the one that rose on the third day, victorious over sin and death. You're the one that paid in entirety the debt that we owe for our sin. And so, Father, we pray that our trust would be wholeheartedly in you and in you alone. So, Lord, we pray that you would just bless our conversation now around our tables and take us safely home, take us through the rest of the week. We also think of the men tomorrow night, that we would have a good meeting as well as we come out and meet together and begin our new study together. We just thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen.